Jared, thank you so much, bro, for <laughs> Jared's like slumped down down here. I think the 110 just about took it out of him. But uh, brother, thank you so much for just sharing your story with us. Uh, it's so powerful to hear God's work in your life. So friends, welcome to 180. I know you've been welcomed about three times about this point in the meeting, but I want to welcome you again. And I especially want to welcome those of you who are here for the first time. And as Jared uh, mentioned, 180 is meant to be a space that whether you would identify as a follower of Jesus or whether you're just here checking things out, um, we're so glad that you're here. And we want uh, not only 180, but crew at large to be a space where you're able to ask questions, uh, learn more about who Jesus is, and be able to engage wherever you're at. And tonight, uh, we are kicking off a series called More Than. And what we're doing in this series is exploring um, just the Christianity that we find in the Bible. Because what I've found, and maybe you would hear this, Jared kind of even touched on this, is that for most people I've talked with, um, I've discovered that the Christianity that's found in the scriptures is so much more than what most people think or say it is. And in fact, I experienced this in my own life. Um, I did not grow up in anything that resembled a Christian home. My parents were not uh, followers of Jesus. Um, we went to church every once in a while. I'm not entirely sure why, truthfully, because they didn't really like going, but I think they felt like as good parents they should take me. Um, and so I associated going to church with one more day where I had to go do something I didn't want to go do, uh, like I felt about school. Um, but So I, grow, I grew up with no uh, interest in becoming a Christian. Um, in fact, most of the Christians I did know in high school, I didn't really like them. They, they kind of, I don't know, were strange to me that they didn't cuss, um, they didn't drink, They're, they had radio stations for themselves that I thought had really bad music. Uh, the, mu the movies that they produced seemed really cheesy, um, and some of them wore t-shirts. And I was like, you know, I don't really want to be part of that club. Um, everything they do just seems pretty lame. Um, and so I just had no interest whatsoever in becoming a Christian. But I had some friends in high school that were Christians, and they began to invite me to church events, which, of course, I blew them off for. Like, no, I'm not doing that. But thankfully, they continued to pursue me, um, and they didn't let down. And they eventually wore me down enough that I agreed to go. And when I went to church with them, I quickly discovered as, as they opened up the Bible and they began to talk about Jesus and what he had done, I began to realize that the Christianity I, I thought the Bible talked about wasn't what was there at all. I realized that my impression of what Christianity was was way off, way off. And my, my idea of Christianity sounded something like this, that I would have said that to be a Christian means that you're a good person who believes in God and you try to do nice things for other people. And that if you, if you try hard enough at that, you'll get to go to heaven when you die. That was my idea of Christianity. And in fact, as I've been here at OU now for a long time, and I've talked with a lot of students and a lot of people, both those who I identify as Christians and those who wouldn't, many of them have described Christianity in this exact same way. But here's the problem. That version of Christianity is not what is found in here. That the Christianity that the Bible talks about isn't about believe in God, try harder, do better. Um, in fact, this is a little off topic. Are y'all familiar with powdered scrambled eggs? They're disgusting. They're the fa I don't know if Nelson's serving that stuff anymore. In my day, they did. But man, they are foul. You look at a, you, like you see them from afar and you think, oh, scrambled eggs, great, I'm going to go for that. And then what you get is a yellow sponge on your plate. 
And, uh, and so what, the problem with powdered scrambled eggs is they're a fake version of the real thing. And they're not even close to what the real thing is. And when we think about Christianity in that kind of way, where it's about trying harder, doing better, believe in God, you go to heaven, that's the powdered scrambled eggs version of Christianity. In fact, if we were to give a name to that version of Christianity, it would look something like this. We would call it moralistic, therapeutic deism. Now, I realize it's a dangerous thing for me to put words with that many syllables up on a screen at this point on a Thursday week, too. You guys are like, check out. No, hang in, all right? <laughs> hang in there with me. So let me define what this is, okay? Because I think this was so helpful for me. By moralistic, we're talking about it's the belief that I'm a good person who needs to become a better person, right? By therapeutic, what we mean is being, being involved in a religion is about my own self-fulfillment. So as I become a better person, I feel better about myself. And it has to do with deism because it's, about, it's connected to belief in a higher power. And so God isn't there uh, to save me or rescue me from my own sin. He's, he kind of sits there at a distance, and I pray to him when I need some help on a chemistry exam. <laughs> like that's, that's like our idea of, I think for a lot of people, what Christianity is. Moralistic, therapeutic deism. And here's the thing. All of you have participated in moralistic, therapeutic deism. I mean, you know how I know? Because, well, I guess I don't know about everyone. Most of you. Because most of you were taught to believe in Santa Claus growing up. And the way that believing in Santa Claus works is moralistic, therapeutic deism. Let me tell you why. Um, he's, he's making his list. He's checking it twice. He's going to find out whether you're naughty or nice. And so how do parents encourage good behavior it's from their children? They tell them, hey, Santa's watching. If you don't get your act together, you're getting coal. And so when we think about Christianity, we often kind of make God into Santa Claus 2.0. Whereas God's watching you, and if you don't get your act together, it's not that you're going to get cold, it's that you're going to go to hell. So you better get your act together so you go to heaven someday. That's, that's moralistic therapeutic deism. And so thankfully, the Bible presents us with an infinitely better message, an infinitely better God, an infinitely better Savior, and an infinitely better way to live. And so my hope and aim tonight is to help you see and savor this Jesus that Jared talked about, this Jesus that has transformed our lives. Because I think when you see what this Jesus has done and why he's done it, it'll make so much sense of the, the Christianity that's found in this book. So can we, can we pray real quick and we'll dive in. Father, I ask that you would come and that you would, uh, you would speak to each person in this room tonight, wherever they are. And Lord, I would pray that you would help make this gospel clear to each and every single one of us. I pray that we would understand and see, Jesus, who you are and what you've done, and that at the end of our time together that we would savor you and see you more. And we pray this in Jesus' beautiful name. Amen. If you have a Bible, turn to 1 Corinthians 15. We're going to look at this passage, just four verses here tonight. So starting in verse 1 of 1 Corinthians 15. The Apostle Paul, he writes this. He says, Brothers and sisters, I want to remind you of the gospel that I preached to you, which you received in which you have taken your stand. By this gospel, you've been saved. If you heard, hold firmly to the word I preach to you, otherwise you've believed in vain. For what I've received, I've passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins 
according to the scriptures, that he was buried, he was raised, and on the third day according, and he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. And so the Apostle Paul, who wrote this passage, he begins by saying, I want to remind you of the gospel. And so let me, let me just unpack what that word means real fast, because maybe you've heard this word before, but I think so many people don't know what it means. That word gospel literally means news that brings joy. It's not a religious word, actually. It, it, it's, gospel was news about some life-changing event that's taken place in history. And so Paul says, I want to remind you of the gospel. And it's this. This is what's of first importance about the gospel. Christ died for our sins. And so that's where Paul starts. He says, this is what's of first importance. Christ died. So he doesn't say what's of first importance is, hey, here's what you need to get busy doing. He says, this is what's been done. Christ died. Now, um, I mentioned before, right, I did not grow up as a Christian. Um, but I saw, I don't know, maybe you guys have seen the billboards like on I-71 or something that says Christ died for you and it's like has flames on it or something. I don't know. It's like some frightening thing. But I had heard this phrase so many times, Christ, Christ died for you, Christ died for you. you I mean, I, I kid you not, they may, people may as well have just inserted like Peter Pan died for you, SpongeBob SquarePants died for you because that's like what it meant to me, nothing. It meant nothing to me. And the reason why it meant nothing to me is, was because of this. And maybe you're on the same page as me. It's because I couldn't answer this question. What does Jesus' death accomplish for me? Like, what, what does his dying for me actually change or do? And that was something I, I had never had anyone explain to me. And so... I want to get to that question because I think it's paramount. But before we answer that question, we have to talk about two realities that the, that the Bible speaks of. Because without understanding these two realities, Jesus' death for us makes no sense whatsoever. And so the two realities that the, that the Bible speaks of are found in these verses. Romans 3.23, which says, all have sinned, all of us. So if you're here, you have breath in your lungs and your eyes are still blinking, we're on the same team. All of us have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And what's fascinating about that is the Bible doesn't really operate in these categories of good people and bad people. It only operates in the category of sinners. And then the next thing that it says is that the wage, which that word just means payment, the payment for sin is death. And so if you can connect the two dots, what's, what are those verses saying? If everyone has sinned, how many people deserve the pay penalty or payment of death? All of us. Now, I don't know, as you're sitting here and hearing this, but when I heard that, I started to lose it. I was like, what? Like, what? That's what the Bible says? That we all get the penalty of eternal damnation for our sin, like, across the board? And that, for me, that rattled my mind, because that, that was not how I understood God. In fact, how I thought about God was something much more, or at least not how I thought about God, but how I thought about how God relates to sin. I thought of it in the same way of how a college professor would relate to an entire classroom flunking an exam. Where, you know, if the college professor, if all of you guys flunk an exam, I think that this would happen this way, this is how I imagine it, is that he has to curve the grade, right? He can't flunk 400 people in psych, you know, 101 or whatever it is, 
He has to curve the grade. And I thought of God in this exact same way. Well, God, no one's perfect, we would say. We're, I think we would all agree with that first verse that says, all fall sh- like we all sin, right? We would all agree with that. It's the second verse that we're like, nope, no, I don't, no, no way. But that's what the Bible says is true, is that God's not like a college professor who curves the grade, but that we all deserve the penalty of death for our own sin and rebellion. Now, that's a tough pill to swallow, but unless you're willing to concede it, Jesus' death and dying for you on a cross makes no sense without it. Because if we don't believe that we deserve this penalty, what we can actually begin to believe is, I can save myself. I can actually work hard enough, do enough good deeds. I can become a good enough person. Why would I need a savior if I can save myself? And so that's part of what's inherently fallen in all of our own hearts is because we don't think we need a savior. We don't think we need rescue because either A, we think we're good enough to be our own, or B, we don't think we're bad enough to need one. And the Bible says that that's not what's true. And so for me, as I began to take that in, I've actually had guys, as I've shared this with them, they're like, so is the Bible saying we're screwed? Like, no matter how hard we try? Yeah, pretty much. That's how it talks about it, which is so heavy. I feel the heaviness in the room right now. But here's this is such an important point to make because otherwise, like I said, Jesus makes no sense. Here's how Jesus speaks of his own purpose for why God became a man and why he came to earth. Jesus says this of himself. He says, the son of man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. You all know what a ransom is? A ransom is the payment demanded for the release of a prisoner. It's the payment demanded to release a prisoner. And so, man, when I've thought about Jesus dying on the cross, I've heard some people say, man, it's, it's just show that it's, it's God saying that he loves us enough to die for us. And while in some sense that's totally true, that Jesus dying for us is a demonstration of God's love, It's not the purpose of his death for us. His purpose for dying was because the penalty for sin is death, and the only way for us to be ransomed or to have that penalty paid is either A, for us to pay it, or for someone else to pay it for us. And so Jesus isn't the example that we just, that we simply model our lives after, and if we model him well enough, we go to heaven. Jesus is a substitute. He's saying, I love you, I want to rescue you. I want to spend eternity with you and have relationship with you, just like Jared talked about. And the only way for for that to happen is for me to die in your place. Does that make sense? Are you tracking with me? Jesus is our substitute. And more than this, though, is, is significant, is that Jesus not only paid the debt that we owe for our sin, but he also, he also lives the life we should have lived, a perfect one. So he not only pays our debt, but he's the only human who ever lived who actually deserved to go to heaven based on performance because he lived a sinless life. And so he not only pays the debt, but he purchases our way to have eternity with God, to go to heaven. And so it changes everything. Now, I want you to hear this because, um, man, for so long, I just thought 
people just kind of choose like to be a Christian. It's like a choice that you just make because it's your preference, like your favorite like lollipop flavor or something like that. Like, yeah, I like that flavor of religion. I got we'll go with Christianity. But Christianity presents something totally unique, and here's why: Christianity is not based on preference. I'm a Christian not because it's the one I like the most. It's because I think that God became a man, that he died on a cross, and Jesus walked out of a grave three days after his death. That's why I'm a Christian, because I believe that literally, historically, it happened. And that's the question for every single one of you tonight that you have to wrestle with at some point in your life. It's not a matter of preference. I don't like this or not, or you do or you don't. It's this, did Jesus get out of the grave or not? Because if Jesus rose from the dead, he's God. And if he stayed in that grave, he's nothing. He's nothing. And so that's the, that's the decision that faces every single one of us. And so here's what's amazing. is that Maybe this is beginning to come clear. Is what does this actually mean then? If Jesus paid the debt that we owe and he lived the life we should have lived, what's left? What do we do? And what this actually begins to demonstrate to us is that Being a Christian in the gospel message is not about what you and I need to get busy doing. It's good news about what Jesus has already done. In fact, the the Apostle Paul, he talks about it this way. He says that the way that you're saved is by grace. He says, for by grace you've been saved. How? Through faith in Christ and what he's done. And it's almost like as if he's saying, hey, in case y'all are thick and a little slow on picking things up, let let me tease this out for you a little bit more. This is not from yourselves. This is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. It's not by works so that no one can boast. And you guys are college students, so you know, I know you know the definition of words, but this phrase, by grace, what that literally means is it's an undeserved favor. I'm doing something kind to you because I want to. And we've been saved from the penalty of our sin. And then he says, it's not by works. So here's what's amazing. Your good works, the best things you've ever done, the most God-glorifying, kind, amazing, humanitarian, whatever, has not made God love you more. But no matter what you've done, no matter what evil's been done to you or you've participated in, that does not make God receive you less. Why? Because you're not accepted at all based on your performance or your effort, you're accepted because of Jesus' life and death and resurrection for you. You're accepted because of his performance. And so this Christianity spits in the face of religion. It spits in the face of religion. Because what does religion say? Religion says, if I obey, then I get accepted. But the gospel says, because I'm accepted, I obey. Do you get the difference? I don't, I don't obey God to get accepted. I obey God because I am. And so the motivation is radically different, radically different. Because in religion, what is my motivation? My motivation in religion is fear and guilt. I'm afraid. If I don't do this, I'll be rejected. But in, in the gospel, what's my motivation? My motivation is love and gratitude. Christianity is the only, the only faith where you get the verdict before the performance. It's the only one where you get the verdict before the performance, where you're accepted. And it has nothing to do with your performance. 
In this, I mean, this is so different, isn't it? That's the difference between good advice and good news. Good advice tells you what you need to do. Good news tells you what's been done. And that's the difference between Christianity and every other religion. And yet when we water down the Christian message, when we water down Christianity, what do we do? We turn this into a book of moralistic therapeutic deism that's full of stories of people I don't want to be like and people I need to be like. And all that I need to do as a Christian is do better, try harder, God will love me more. False. You've mistaken, you've missed it, just like I did. I had no idea that this God would come and pay the debt for my own rebellion against him. This God loved me, that he would die a horrific, excruciating, atrocious death on a cross. He did go to whatever ends to save me and rescue me. And he did it for my joy. He did it for his glory. He did it for, uh, for me to be able to spend eternity with him. And when I think about this dichotomy of religion and the gospel, I honestly think about my marriage with, with my wife, Amy. I think about if, if, we, if, I, if our marriage functioned in this way where she said, hey, Nick, if you screw up and you're less than a perfect husband, I'm gone. Or if you screw up enough, you do bad enough, I'm out of here, we're over. I would, just, I would never be able to enjoy our marriage because I would be constantly operating out of fear. I would constantly fear and just feel so wrecked and guilty by my screw-ups. And thankfully, my wife does not treat me that way, but she extends the gospel to me. She knows that I'm, I'm imperfect. I am so far from perfect that her love isn't contingent on my performance. And here's what's fascinating is that the fact that my, life, my wife loves me unconditionally does not cause me to treat her poorly. I don't take her love for me for granted and just use that as license to mistreat her, it actually motivates me to want to work harder and love her better. I actually, my, my, if we're to use this language, I, because she loves me, she accepts me, I'm motivated to take care and love and serve her. And so that's the kind of picture we're, we're presented with in the scriptures. And so it's amazing because when I think about, when I think a lot of people hear the Christian message, they hear, oh, Jesus died for my sins, all I do is accept him, and then I do whatever I want. Well, if that's how you've heard it, then I don't think you've quite understood. Because you see, obedience to God, that, that turning, when we call 180-180, that turning to Jesus means that we're turning away from our sin. That obedience is the natural byproduct of true faith. Because faith doesn't merely choose Jesus it sees what he's done and it cherishes him. True faith doesn't just choose him, it cherishes him. And so if you don't, if you're willing to take Jesus as your savior, but you're not willing to bow your knee in the areas of your life to him as Lord, you can't have him that way. You have to take him as savior and Lord or you can't have him at all. Because like I said, true faith doesn't just choose Christ, it cherishes him. And so, none of this, by any means, of course, hopefully you're not making this connection where you're like, well, I'm still gonna, I'm not gonna be perfect, right? So true faith doesn't mean that we would never sin again, but what it means then is that there's a fundamental heart change in our lives where my attitude towards sin changes. It's not that I'm just changing my behavior, but my attitude, there's actual love for God in my life. And so the question is, do you, do you make friendship with sin and rebellion in your life, or do you fight against it? 
And so I realize I've shared maybe a lot with you guys tonight, but, but I want to put this question to you. Wherever you are, where are you at with Jesus? Where are you at with him? You know, if you're here and you're not a Christ follower, um, and you've never, maybe this is like the first time you've ever heard this. Um, what are you going to do with this? Well, how are you going to respond? Is there anything that's keeping you from placing your faith in Christ? And maybe it's intellectual hangups, and it's totally legitimate. I had so many intellectual hangups that I didn't know how to make sense of that I felt like I couldn't move forward. But I at least came to a place where I was able to say, God, I believe at least this much. I believe at least that you came and that you died for me and that I'm in need of a savior. I don't have all my questions answered and I'd, I need to learn more, but I at least believe that much. And so if that's where you're at, man, I couldn't encourage you more to continue to press into your questions, but be willing, if you're at a place, to be able to say, I'm gonna, Jesus, I wanna place my faith in you. And here's the other question. For those of you who would identify as Christians, is Jesus of first importance to you in the way that Paul talks about? Have you, begin to, have you begun to slip into a moralistic, therapeutic, deistic idea of what it means to be a follower of Jesus? Because here, here's the truth, friends. If you would I call yourself a follower of Christ, the mark of a Christian who knows the gospel means that when they stumble, when they screw up, they're not people who run away from God. They run to God. If you understand the gospel when you screw up and you fail, you don't run and hide, you run to God. Because again, we understand that we're accepted because of what Christ has done. And so where are you at? Where, I, I know that for every single one of us, there's application for us that we need to take away, that we need to remind ourselves of the gospel. We need to press in. And for those of us who don't have that faith yet, maybe in Christ, that you would continue to press into these questions. Because again, at the very least, the question you have to ask yourselves is, was Jesus real? Did he really get up out of the grave? And if he did, he's God. And if that's the case, what are you going to do with that? And so I want to give you a moment, maybe just where you are, to be able just to uh, take a moment and pray. I'm going to turn off, have the girls turn off the lights here. But just give you a moment just to talk with God wherever you're at. And maybe that means that this is the moment where you're, maybe like Jared said two years ago, this was the night that he made that decision to step over the line and say, Jesus, I want to place my faith in you. And so let's go ahead and kill the lights, if you would, um, and bow our heads and just take a moment and talk to the Lord. If you're at a place where you are saying that you want to place your faith in Christ, um, and you want, to, you want to trust Jesus as your Savior, I want to invite you to pray with me. None of the words I'm going to say by any means are magic words or anything like that, but but. The way that we express faith in Christ, a good way to do that is through prayer. And so if you're at that place where you want to make that decision, I would just invite you just to pray silently, silently with me. Father, thank you so much for sending Jesus to die on the cross for my sins. Lord, I want to turn my life towards you, and I want to place my faith in Jesus. Jesus, thank you for dying on the cross for me. Pray that you would begin to transform my heart and make me the kind of person that you want me to be. And I ask this in Jesus' name, amen. 
And for those of you, friends, who are believers in Christ, let me just pray for you where you're at right now. Father, I pray that you would, you would, you would bless these students. You would bless my friends here. I pray that you would help them just to experience the gospel, not just know it in their mind, but let it transform their very own hearts. And God, it's my prayer that they would so deeply experience your love for them, your kindness towards them, that it would just continue just to overflow in affection for you in their lives. I pray that there wouldn't be, where there, where there is sin, where there is regret, where there is pain, where there is guilt in their lives, I pray that you would, they would hear you speaking love over them because of Jesus, that they are a son who you are well-pleased in, that they are a daughter in whom you are well-pleased. And so, Lord, we give you thanks and glory. In Jesus' beautiful name, amen.